You're listening to the HSDNA podcast from the Garden State. Your host, Justin Starbird, and guests from HS Design walk you through each step of the medical product development process. Listen in as they discuss topics like contextual research, human factor testing, and conceptualization, giving you the best practices and real examples of success in the field. And now, here's your host, Justin Starbird. Welcome back to the HS DNA podcast. My name is Justin Starbird, and today is a really interesting topic uh, in and around product development and how you come out with a commercialized device at the end. I'm privileged to be joined by Mary Beth Privatera of HS Design. Mary Beth, thanks for joining me today. Wow, thanks for Justin. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Yeah, no, this is really neat. So we're going to talk a little bit about human factors. Um, and you know what that means you know get into a little bit about what that is and how that applies to medical device and especially product development when it comes to medical devices um, but with that said I want to learn a little bit more about you Mary Beth how did you you know get started um, with HS design and and uh, get to where you are today Sure. Um, it's a good question. Well, to, uh, my background is I'm an industrial designer, and, um, and then I went on and got further education and further education and further education and ended up with a PhD in design focused in on medical devices. Um, and I've been friends with Tor Alden, the owner and principal of, of HS Design for years, and always served as an advisory role to his research um, because I, hold, I also hold an academic appointment at the University of Cincinnati teaching medical device design and running their medical device design program. So I've been friends with Tor for years, and he said, I'd really like for you to join the team and I said, I don't know if I'm ready for that. <laughs> and lo and behold, I was. Um, and he said, please don't tease. And then there, here we are. So um, now it's been, I think we're going on, maybe this is the fourth year, I believe, of being part of the HS team. And I'm, I couldn't be happier uh, with the team and with the organization. Um, well, that's awesome. I'm, and uh uh, I'm, I've talked to Tora at length uh, in the past, and so it's it's great to have have you on the team and learn more about you know what your expertise and skill sets are. And one of those is in human factors. I guess before we get any deeper, what are human factors? What what does that mean when I when somebody tells me about human factors? Sure. So hold on, I'm just going to get rid of my email so that it doesn't do that again. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. Um. So what are human factors? It's a great question. So human factors, I mean, back when I was in design school, human factors was a course that we took. Um, and we basically, we essentially, in that particular course, we were looking for how do people interact with the objects? Um, it isn't a profession in and of itself. So if you look, there are human factors professional professionals that are, that go get a degree in human factors. Um, it essentially applies theoretical principles, data, methods in order to optimize the design for the purposes of well-being and overall system performance. So it's really about how do we interact with products and systems? How do we interact with ourselves? Um, and it gets down to um, when we're doing our work, it's the tools, it's the tasks, it's the environments, and taking that all into consideration so that we have a little easier time doing our everyday tasks or when we're on the job, our, our jobs, the tasks that we have to do related to our job. 
Right. So you mentioned your background as an industrial design. If we compare human factors in consumer industrial design versus medical device or the medical industry, um, how, how would you compare the two? Well, it's, I have a different answer if you would have asked me that question about 10 years ago. Because about 10 years ago, I would say that um, while human factors were important in consumer products, they weren't really recognized. In other words, you could have something that was utterly uncomfortable, but because it was super cool, people really liked it. But I think increasingly, both in, in the consumer market and in the medical device market, um, it's becoming more and more important people get a little bit less patient when they can't figure something out and i guess the 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 biggest model of that would have been in the 90s trying to program your vcr nobody could program your vcr versus today now we're we're well equipped with very advanced cell phones which are driving our culture and that's spilled over into the medical device field where um, you know, people's lives depend on whether or not they can actually use that device. They can live with that device, whether it's a patient-driven um, patient-driven div device where the patient takes it home with them, or it's in the hospital and it's a, a critically um, critical care patient. Um, one of the big differences, though, between the consumer world and the medical device world is that doing human factors in the medical device world is mandatory. It's not an option. Whereas you could get by with a little bit less so human factors in the consumer world. Um, um, and, and in other words, I, I guess maybe it's not less, but it's not scrutinized to the level of the degree that it is in the medical field. And I guess that's the difference. It's not that they're less important. It's that they're not scrutinized by an agency. So, um, but, and that's all dependent upon risk. So the higher the risk, the more scrutiny it should mm -hmm. have and does have. So. Yep. Someone will look at it, FDA, there's um, national and international standards in regards to human factors that we have to do in medical devices that you don't have to do in consumer products. Well, maybe if there was a little bit more scrutiny on those VCRs to program <laughs> them, then, you know, they may still be in vogue as opposed to all, no, they, they still wouldn't be in vogue, but, you know. <laughs> You're, you're spot on on that one. <laughs> right. I mean, I just can remember like trying to, you know, tape a game or something or, or a show or I don't know, that was like Seinfeld, right? So yeah. you missed the last episode and you missed it. That's yeah, it. it's true. It's true. No, no DVR. You can't go back. So right, uh, right. I guess that shows my age too. <laughs> uh, my, mine too. Um, so let me ask you then, uh, do you see a relationship between uh, human factors and then patient safety as it relates to that level of scrutiny? scrutiny? Oh, I absolutely do see um, a relationship between uh, patient safety and, um, and human factors in medical device design. I, I believe that it's the, um, it was a study that came out of um, Johns Hopkins a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, that pointed to the fact that use error is one of the leading causes of death in the United States. And I can't say that the lack of human factors in medical devices is entirely to blame because the practice of medicine is a, is a giant system. However, they do have a role in how we develop, de, uh, develop the devices and how the devices are in consideration of that overall 
um, system that the practice of medicine goes into. In, in other words, if we are focused solely on the singular device of an anesthesia cart, well, how does that anesthesia cart speak to the phlebotomist cart that when they go on bypass that, that they are actually talking to one another and is the overall system taken into consideration? Um, and, and in regards to um, really in pa promoting patient safety, um, that has also been a branch of human factors that has, has um, split a little bit. So there's mm -hmm. human factors as it relates to device design, but then there's also the human factors um, that contributes to patient safety and literature that's come out about the system to design. So how can we identify and remove hazards of the design and the, and while it's uh, of the system overall? So how to, you know, just the, how do I hand off from a patient from the OR to the recovery unit into the floor? Those, those types of situations are what I'm referring to. And how can we, um, if you can't avoid an obstacle, then what are the strategies to mitigate the impact that it would have on the systems? Or um, how can we make the system resilient and support uh, adaptability, flexibility of humans? Because if you mm -hmm. look at um, your cell phone, for example, the beautiful part of it is that I can make it my own. So how can I make my work environment my own and enable those users to detect, adapt to, recover from disruptions, disturbances, errors, hazards? Um, and I think that's really the crux of all human factors is that is to, to design um, systems, devices that are flexible that enable the users to back out when they do have a problem. Mm -hmm. So as you evaluate projects that you potentially take on or, you know, uh, an innovator, inventor, uh, or even, a, you know, another joint company comes to you with an idea for a device or, you know, potential solution to a, a problem in, in, that's out there, what's kind of the checklist that you walk them through to determine, you know, if they need to, I don't want to say go on a field trip, but you know, um, study some of the human factors that go into the use of the, you know, potentially end device? Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So one of the things that we start off with is just to try to understand where they are and what they've done. Oftentimes, they are the, the impetus for the device in and of itself um, is coming from a user's voice or, or it could be that the user, the inventor is actually the user. Mm -hmm. um, we want to understand, have they talked to any other customers? Have they looked across the, the practice of the niche of whatever that particular product is in? Do they have um, comparable products that they've assessed? Um, what, um, just, get a, just get a sense for where they are in their design. Most often, people aren't aware of the standards and the requirements, or they know that they have to do something, but they don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. So we really have to go in um, and, and just get a, a picture for what is done. The other part of that, too, is if, if a lot has been done, it could be that we don't, you know, that we're hitting it at a different point in the design process. So we don't need to do a lot of upfront research. So it's not in every instance that we, we go back to the beginning. It's usually it's to assess where they are and then build from there. So there's a whole... Um, building of a strategy, if you will, that 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 can be um, really helpful when you're determining the overall depth and and scale of a human factors um, effort. 
So for example, if it's low risk uh, and you don't have a lot of critical tasks and you know what you're doing, well then you probably would have a light human factor strategy. But it, let's just say that it's a, a product that's a drug delivery device that's intended to be over the counter or it's going to be um, you know, widely used, something for diabetes, let's say, something that th there's just a very, very large pool. Well, you, you would really need to branch out on your human factor studies and go beyond what the regulatory agency requires because you're not actually going to make the market happy if you just stick to the letter of the rules there. You want to do a little bit more. So higher the risk, larger the marketplace, more in-depth human factor studies are required. Sure. Um, well, well, that certainly makes sense because like you said that earlier, uh, you know, the end of this, if it doesn't work, then, you know, people may die, right? So, right, exactly. <laughs> or, or they're not going to be having, I know, I truly believe that, you know, really when you apply the human factors principles, um, you're going to enable a value-based care with the products and systems. You're, you're going to end up with something that is desirable. And, and, and that's the key point there is it, the agency just says it has to be safe and effective. Well, what about making it usable? What about making it desirable? And I think when you start to look at the principles of human factors, it's really about increasing the overall value and, and mastering that market to be efficient, to have fewer kappas on the, on the, uh, after it's been released. Mm -hmm. uh, so speaking of the release part of it, you know, I, I feel like it's, it's one thing to have a checklist and, you know, you go out and do research and, and a lot of people, you know, that's kind of where their, their, uh, uh, wheelhouse is, is doing the research and coming back with like, Hey, hey, you should do this or you should do that. But where the rubber meets the road, if you will, is uh, then applying those factors into the process of actual development. Tell us how you, you know, take take a, a study in a, or a strategy to a study to execution and then, you know, integration into a device. So assuming that you're starting from scratch and you're unsure either what you're going to develop and you need to figure out that strategy out or you know you want to, to build something but you don't have enough knowledge of the clinical procedure, you're missing some key pieces to that, um, we would start with a process called contextual inquiry. And um, there's, a, in terms of methodology, there's more than enough information in a book that I wrote in 2015 called Contextual Inquiry for Medical Device Design. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that that book covers exactly what you talk about, about how do you get this research and the rubber meeting the road. And, and really, when you do that upfront research, you can impact that entire design process. And let me give you some examples. Not only can you identify what products you might want to make that will appease that, um, that population, but you can also characterize what were the people, the tasks, the procedures of that environment? What were the contexts mm -hmm. with which the real world conditions are gonna impact the device design? that aren't important when I know that I want to develop XYZ widget, but when I get down the road, I want to understand, well, is XYZ widget, is that in a light room, a dark room? Does that room lighting change? And if I look at 
my principles of human factors, I'm going to say, well, if the lighting condition changes, then how do I deal with glare if I have a, a touch screen? And, and will, there, will they be sterile? Because if they're sterile, they're wearing gloves, they're not going to want to touch something. So how do I accommodate that? Or if they're non-sterile or their hands are gooby, um, those are the types of things that can really, when that, when that research is done well, um, and thought through, then you can impact every phase of that device development through to getting something that's manufacturable. Well, let's talk about something fun then. Let's talk about what like real real examples there of you know ways in which you've developed it and and products or clients that you can um, that you can talk about where you've been able to execute on those on those strategies and develop sure. them. Sure. So. Um, there's one um, case study that that's uh, this one I'm going to pull from the book on HS um, and Tor Alden. He was the author of this of this chapter, but it's a great example where um, HS Design went in and they were working on a piece of lab equipment. And overall, we we went through and we mapped out what the journey was, and we looked at how the labs were dealing with all their specimen delivery. And um, essentially, through this methodology, we discovered that the product, there wasn't a need for it. Where we had intended it to be, there wasn't a need. So it was a huge pivot turn to get it into a different location that made sense. So in, in that particular example, um, that's a snap path as a product. That one, it was a, it's just a, a whole 180 degree shift. Mm -hmm. um, and another product that we did, um, we did this for Bard Medical, which is now BD. We were researching, um, was involved in researching just how they place Foley catheters and looking at Foley catheter placement as it relates to um, the OR, the ER, and critical care. I was using all of those different locations and maintaining sterility and really looking at ways that we can improve sterile methodology, but not making any fundamental change to the overall product. Mm -hmm. So without changing the product in and of itself, we, we impacted packaging and made it so simple, looked at what were the waste. So out of you know, the, the old product code, what were they not using and really making things tighter and more efficient. Um, so it can be a, a very, very, um, a very, very efficient methodology to say, this is what I shouldn't be doing as well mm -hmm. as this is what I should be doing. Um, another example would be um, Hologic's Trident system, which is just now on the market that's just released. We were looking at what were the competitors and what were they, what do they really need um, in terms of specimen radiography. And in that particular instance, um, we were able to determine some key needs that they, that in order to be competitive, um, and that device is just now out. We we impacted things like. Uh, what were the the ability for the um, for the tech to reach to place the specimen? So we're looking at care and just specimen handling overall. So mm -hmm. it really can get down to the details. So it does. A lot of people look at that research and they say, "What are my opportunities?" Well, we say, "What are the opportunities?" And then from those opportunities, what are the design details that need to come out to take into account for the context? And most people don't look at that part of it, right? Well, they might, but t typically they forget. They forget that they looked at it and they forget that they have <laughs> that information there. Um, yep. We don't forget. <laughs> right, right. 
<clears throat> well, so speaking of that, what are some of the opportunities, you know, what are biggest opportunities to, to apply that? So you mentioned in the device, you mentioned in, in something, you know, as uh, almost a byproduct of it is packaging. Where are there some, where are some other big opportunities? Um, and the instructions for use, which is an increasingly large category. So how do I design um, relevant instructions for use? I know that no one <laughs> wants surgeon to have to read the instructions, but we have, we're mandated to provide them. Um, but if we make them meaningful or make them obsolete, that we know that they're not going to read it. So how can I direct the, the clinician to do, to make all the right decisions? Um, so that's one way. I mean, the, the, the biggest way is truly in that specific product design area. And in the, in the product design area, that's also the um, most important mitigator for risk. So if you look at um, risk overall, that is going to be the number one way to reduce risk is to do that by design. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it's really about product design. It's the overall user interface. The other thing that you can glean out of it that we've participated in is developing the market story, if you will. So how... Um, Knowing how a device is acquired by the hospital um, or by the organization that you intend to sell to, if we look at what is it going to go through a panel review, what are the attributes that they're looking for, and looking at the competitors and what the, the values of the competitors are, then we can help formulate what are going to be the key features that are going to differentiate this product in the marketplace. Right. So having that at the outset is, is a real yeah. um, game changer too. So speaking of differentiation though, um, when somebody's coming to you and they're kind of evaluating, you know, firms to use that have uh, expertise in human factors, what are some of the questions they, they should ask to judge uh, a, a firm or an agency, uh, you know, on, you know, whether or not they're capable of actually seeing a, a project, you know, through to the end? Sure. So there are human factors firms that solely do human factors. Um, and I think one of your main key points here is what differentiates HS over other organizations. Um, and I, I believe that when you have, um, we're, we're, we're a certified, you know, 13485 certified firm, we've got, we've got the documentation, we're audited, um, we have design and engineering. The, the difference when you're just doing human factors, you may or may not have full appreciation for the manufacturing, for the trade-off decisions that have to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, once you start to get into the, the devil and the details of your product design, you know, for example, I, I, I cannot have a battery that lasts a really long time that is very light. They're all heavy and they're all large and bulky that's going to last a long time. So how do I make that trade-off decision as to what's more important about it? If you're just solely looking at the human factors, you would say, well, I need it to be light and I need it to last. But you, you, don't, you may not appreciate all of the subtle nuances and details because even if I looked at and I was able to mitigate the light, the weight, and the length of battery time, where do I put it? You know, I have right. to put it someplace now. So yeah. do I, you know, and if I, in a lot of, you know, if I look at just, just take a, for example, a cart design, I, I may want to put it as a belly pan at the bottom of it. Well, now when I walk, if I'm pushing it, I might kick it. 
uh, if I put right. it on the back. So I changed the, the center of gravity. So I think that one of the, the biggest differences would be, do they have in-house design? Um, and, and do I need that? You know, sometimes companies only need the summative evaluation, which um, they, you know, again, they may have done all of the work up to that point and they just need a third party to, to look at it on the outset. Um, can they prepare something to submit to the FDA? Do you need to submit something to the FDA or do you need something prepared to submit to one of the international agencies? So that's, um, those are some of the questions that I, I, would, I would encourage people to ask. Yeah, no, uh, I'll, I'll make a lot of sense, especially as you're, uh, you know, there's introduce more competition into the market and, you know, folks that have, you know, a little bit of expertise and say, Hey, we can do that too. Just making sure that that folks have the right questions to ask and, and evaluating apples to apples, if you will, as they, you know, choose a, an agency to work with um, and yeah. see, see their ideas come to fruition. Um, and, you know, I think that's really important, especially when, you know, you come to, uh, that the end piece and um, you're working with the right firm that you know fits all the guidelines that you're trying to accomplish as well as having the experience to see those things to market do you have anything else that you you know that we should know about human factors and, and things that that are going on right now in that space well it is an ever-increasing uh, beehive of activity in this space um, there is um, a lot of misinformation, a lot of gray and confusing areas that I think are out in the out in the field and the practice because there, it's not something that has been ingrained in a lot of engineering education. Um, it makes sense to do from a business standpoint, but it's not always achievable, attainable. Um, it may not be uh, as understood. Um, and I'm guessing it as to why would we not do human factors as an industrial designer, it sort of makes sense. We were taught to do it and it does make complete sense to do it. Um, so there is, there is a big push uh, to, to do that. Um, especially with the, with the FDA mandates, there is also a fair amount of standards that are coming out both nationally and internationally. Um, that, that should be looked out for. Um, HE75, which is the Amy, it's ANSI, Amy HE75, um, and that standard, um, Amy is Association for the Advancement of Medical Instrumentation. It's the Human Engineering Committee, and it's their standard number 75. That came out in 2009. Mm -hmm. I'm co-chair of that Amy committee. And that is up for, um, that is currently being revised. So that should be coming out in the next, I would say in the next two years, we're very slow at that. Um, there's also with our FDA, there's additional guidance that's been coming out um, between CDRH and CDR um, in regards to combination devices. So there's a little subtleties, a little differences between the two of them that are kind of a watch the space and, and pay attention to what, what our own agency is requiring for us and what their, what their guidance documents are. Because um, there there's, a, there's a whole a host of um, 
U.S. medical device standards and guidances. There's one on um, devices for home use. So it's design considerations for devices intended for the home um, or non-clinical. There's a TIR, which is a which stands for technical information reports that are also for non-clinical settings, um, things for reusable devices and infusion pumps. So in that particular area, um, those are just getting more and more written about and they sp speak to specific attributes that need to be in the design regarding human factors. Mm -hmm. And I haven't even begun to talk about what's going on internationally. Because <laughs> internationally, the same thing is going on. We've got um, IEC 62366-1 and dash two. Those are also, uh, both of the, those are our are, are leading ability um, standards. Then um, from there, we've got a, an additional guidance document from MRHA, UA, um, that, that has additional um, human factors and usability engineering guidance for drug device combination products. So there's a, there's a lot of activity that's going on in regards to regulatory. Um, and then just, just sort of figuring all of that out and how that applies to you. It's, it's a bit of a maze. Well, it sounds like we'll have to do another one of these um, to, to learn more about some of the expertise that you have. And, and really, honestly, you know, a lot of times people want to just know how to get started. And, and I think this has been a really good overview of that. And I think we could dive into any number of these topics. So Mary Beth, I really appreciate you joining me today on the latest episode of uh, HSDNA. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been the latest episode of the HSDNA podcast. On behalf of our guests today and host Justin Starbird, thank you for listening. As always, to listen to other episodes of HSDNA, go to hs-design.com and scroll over the HSDNA tab on our menu. Until next time, thanks for listening.